I'm sure you uh, I'm sure you uh, looked at this, but uh, it's a very, very beautiful thought the Al-Tiyabi says in the Tanya. He says it only as an aside. He doesn't even develop it. He just throws it out. Mm-hmm. That is, uh, you know, if you had to pick the most important line of the Haggadah, so it may be the statement towards the end of the Mahir, that That means every person must regard themselves as if they personally were taken out of the triumph. Not just, I'm grateful for what Hashem did to my ancestors, but I have to feel myself that I was a slave in Mitzrayim and Hashem liberated me. This is what the Haggadah says. Chayav Adam Liros Ki'ilu Hu Yatsam Mitzrayim. And the question is, what does that mean? I understand, I'm grateful because there wouldn't have been a Jewish people, etc. But I was not in Mitzrayim. I was not in Mitzrayim as a tourist. And I was certainly not in Mitzrayim as a slave. So what is the halacha saying here? Is the halacha saying I have to make believe something that's not Emmets? Right? What does it mean? All right, so Kabbalistically, you could say my neshama was in Mitzrayim. There are Kabbalistic ideas. But just Alp Nigla. The author Rebbe is actually going to give you a Nigla shot. Alp Nigla. How does one understand the idea that you have to regard yourself as if you were in Mitzrayim? So he says that the word Mitzrayim is not only Egypt. Mitzrayim comes from the word Meitzarim. Meitzarim means boundaries, constrictions, blockages, limitations. David HaMelech says in Halal, Min HaMeitzar Karasika. I call out to Hashem from the narrow, confining places. I feel trapped. So seen in that way, every person has their own Mitzrayim. You could have your Mitzrayim of, of arrogance. You can have your Mitzrayim of selfishness, of anger. Uh, all of these inyanim are things that enslave us, that hold us back, that block us from connecting to HaKadosh Baruch so the Rebbe says, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu put into, when Hashem uh, took the Yidin out of Mitzrayim, He put into the Bria, He put into this world, a, a spiritual kalach, that if I connect to it, I can become liberated from whatever Mitzrayim I myself have. And every person has a Mitzrayim. So when it says you have to regard yourself as if you're taken out of Mitzrayim, it doesn't mean I have to make believe I was a slave in Egypt. But it means I have to be makir, my own inner Mitzrayim, and by connecting to the power of Yitzhiyat Mitzrayim, I can become liberated from that which enslaves me. It's a very, very powerful idea. So what that means is, when you're reading the Haggadah, there's a double meaning that you're going through. On one hand, you're telling the story of Am Yisrael, the story of the Jewish people. Uh, the miracles and uh, the hashkacha of Hashem and the love of Hashem and the promise he made to the others. And that's kind of the whole story of how we became a nation. That's the klali, that's the general meaning of the Haggadah. But then there's a personal idiosyncratic meaning of the Haggadah that will differ from every individual. Every yochid has their own Haggadah. Because I think about my Mitzrayim. What is it that enslaves me? What am I a slave to? And Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim is a kaya Hashem puts into the world that liberates you from whatever it is that enslaves you. So there's like a klali meaning, which is very, I mean, both are very important, which are very, very important. And then there's a prati, a private meaning that each person 
Maybe you'll talk about it at the Seder, maybe you won't, but even if you don't, but it's something that is your connected. What is my avdus? What is my servitude? What is it that prevents me from connecting to HaKadosh Baruch Hu in, in the best way? And Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim can allow you to break through those barriers. That's, that's the fundamental principle in Kabbalah and Chassidus, really, in Machshava generally, that historical events are not just historical events. They represent spiritual kochos that Hashem puts into the world. And time is not seen as a linear. You know, in a linear sequence, there is the past, there is the present, there is the future, etc. And what's past is past. But we look at time as like a circle or a spiral in which the very same ruchnis, the very same spiritual quality comes back again. And therefore you actually relive Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. But you don't relive it in the same physical way. In other words, in the Gashmias of being a slave in Egypt, that's not what comes back. But what comes back is the idea that I, I recognize my slavery and that Kodesh Baruch Hu is going to redeem me from my slavery. But remember, not to be the four-fifths. Four-fifths of the Jews died in Mitzrayim because they didn't want to go out. So it's not that the freedom is automatic. The freedom has to be someone who wants to connect to Hashem and wants to have the freedom that Hashem is giving them. Right? So that's, uh, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a very beautiful machshava. That, again, the, the Balasana just uh, throws it out in like two lines. Hmm. Like it's right in the middle of something. But it's mamish... Uh, I think it's like a central idea that one could take into Pesach. Uh, because as you know, chametz is bread, of course, and chametz is crumbs, but chametz is also a remez to the Yetzir Hara. And when we burn chametz, we're also trying to burn away the Yetzir Hara. In fact, I think for many years, the largest Seder in the world, happened to be a Chabad Seder, I think it was in Kathmandu, in hmm. Nepal. Large Seder, like 2,000 people. Oh, you we, we were there? <laughs> like a real, real gigantic, gigantic Seder. You know, it's, it's, it must be hard to manage because um, no microphones. You know, how do you have a Seder for 2,000? I mean, I, you know, Seder for 30 people is, is pretty hard, actually. So 2,000 people, how is it shy? A lot of them are Israelis. You know, Israelis have this thing that after they, maybe because Israel's a small country, I don't know. After they finish the army, <coughs> they got to travel to India and, and all these places. It's a way of, just, you know, just getting out. <coughs> so they know, so a lot of the people knew Hebrew. They knew Hebrew, but they were second. They were second to Jews. They didn't have any, any religious uh, thing. <coughs> so they have a minna. They started in Kathmandu. That sounds a little hippie-ish. But actually, it's, it's a very, very beautiful minna in many ways. When they burn the chametz, Erev Pesach, everybody is asked to write on a piece of paper a mida ra'a, a bad mida, a bad character trait they have that they would like to burn with the chametz. Like, I'm too selfish, I get angry, I'm lazy. And they looked at burning of the chametz as also burning away the bad, the bad midos. Now, this doesn't mean literally Hawaii it would be so easy to burn away bad midos, just write them on a paper and throw them in. It's like Tashlech on, on Rosh Hashanah, same thing. You know, you throw crumbs into the water, but you know, um, that doesn't mean, you know, it says, uh, Hashem will throw our sins into the sea, like, you know, like, 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 uh, like uh, crumbs. But, you know, that's not how it works. You've got to do tshuva. But these are symbolic actions that make you think about what you have to do. So in the case of Tashlech, I think about doing tshuva. In the case of Pesach, I think about uh, burning my chametz, masakim, my midos, and, and the like. 
So these are things that, uh, you know, Pesach cleaning is very, very holy, very important. And indeed, uh, it's brought down in Svarim that the sweat that is generated from Pesach cleaning brings a lot of rachamim into the world. <laughs> all, I don't remember, there's a Yiddish saying, it's an abbreviation that spells that, maybe some of you might know it, but it's connected to the sweat, literally, the sweat of Pesach brings tremendous kapara. But at the same time, you shouldn't forget the spiritual preparation of Pesach, because sometimes we don't have time, we're working so hard, uh, we don't have time to think about uh, that part. Uh, and, you know, we should spend some time to think about that, uh, think about that as, as, as well, so because you have to burn the chametz of the heart. They tell a beautiful story about a certain Hasidic Rebbe who was doing Bidikas chametz, and he did it with his Talmidim for like many hours, so a real, real hard, hard thing. And the Talmidim felt very good at the end, because wow, you know, we really did a Bidika here, we went through everything. And the Rebbe started crying, the Rebbe pointed to his heart, and the Rebbe said, we did a good Bidikas chametz here, but what about the bedikas chametz here? What about the chametz here? So the Talmidim had a beautiful, beautiful answer. They said, the first Mishnah says in Psachim that a place that you don't bring chametz into doesn't need to be checked. So they said to the Rebbe, your heart is a place that no chametz ever goes into, so you don't have to do bedikas chametz for, the, for the, your putter from the bedikas. <laughs> I don't know if you probably didn't accept that, but still, that's what the... That's what they wanted to tell them. But that's the chametz, chametz of the chametz of the heart. So in this connection, I wanted to share with you something. You know, uh, this last week's Parsha, I don't know if you covered it, you probably had to cover it, but it's really hyper-technical Parsha, right? Some uh, people got really, really scared. I mean, about Mitzorah, so many, so many details. And it's not even no gay halacha today, but so many details. In fact, I remember that uh, when I was just in ninth grade, I don't want to tell you how many years ago, but quite, quite a few years ago, so I had just gone to Yeshiva High School, and uh, I got word Thursday afternoon that, that we get a Chumash test every Friday on the Parsha with Rashi, and we're supposed to learn it by ourselves. So it happened to be the Parsha's Tazria, this Parsha, which I had never learned before in day school or anything like that. So I still remember the abject uh, terror of trying to get through Parsha's Tazria with Rashi in time for a test. Uh, Baruch Hashem, they canceled the test, I think, because I think a lot of other kids had the same, had the same problem. But, uh, but, you know, it's very, very hard and very technical. Uh, but, you know, uh, I mean, as you know, everything in Torah has messages and meanings uh, that apply to us. And sometimes, Badafka, in the most technical, arcane, difficult subjects, there are, like, hidden jewels that maybe you appreciate even more because they weren't so obvious. They weren't so... Right, some places in the Torah, it's obvious... You're talking about high spiritual ideas. Other places, you know, you don't see it automatically. It's there, but it's a hidden, it's a hidden revelation of Hashem. And that can even make it more precious when you're able to take out a jewel from all of the difficulties that are covering it, all the blockages that are covering it. So I want to talk a little bit, although again, it's officially not my subject, but whatever, it's the last, last class, we can be a little liberal. Um, uh, talk, I want to talk about Saras a little bit. Then I will connect it to the subject we were talking about. That is, Saras is, and this I, I'm pretty sure you did cover it, Saras is translated as leprosy, but you understand that it is not the disease that is called leprosy. There is a sickness today that is called, it's not even called leprosy, it used to be called leprosy, it's called Hansen's disease, which is a sickness 
but it does not correspond at all to the Saras of the Torah. Actually, the closest thing that corresponds to Saras of the Torah is Saraiasis, which in fact is a Greek word that <laughs> comes from Saras. Saraiasis is indeed the closest thing we have to Saras, although it's not, not don't worry about it if you have dry skin, don't worry about it if you're not, you're not in the Torah. Uh, but Saras is a, a white splotch on, the, on your skin, and it has to be a certain size, and it has to be a certain brightness of white. And it's a whole specialty, different brightnesses of white, okay? So when a person wakes up one morning, and in the time of the Beis HaMikdash, and he discovers, he or she, men or women, and even Ketanim, uh, babies, uh, if, if they have Saras, they have Saras. No, there's no, there's no age limit here. Uh, has this Saras, or has something that looks like it might be Saras, so they have to go to a Kohen. This is extremely important. Saras doesn't make you tummy just because you have it. Saras does not do anything until a Kohen declares it. That's very important. Until a Kohen declares it, I'm not a Mitzorah. Now you might say, simple question, so why should I ever bother? <laughs> why should I bother going to a Kohen? I mean, I'm not a Mitzorah if the Kohen doesn't say I'm a, I'm, I'm a Mitzorah. So why bother? What's the point? I'm better off not going. You're right. You actually might be better off not going, but uh, there is a mitzvah. You're mechayim to go. The, when the, the Torah says, when you have this uh, discoloration, you must go to the Kohen. Okay. The Kohen looks at it. The Kohen primarily is looking at really two things. He's looking at the brightness of the white. And that's very technical. Certain shades of white are bright enough. Certain are not. And he's looking at the size of it. It has to be the size of a gris, which is a bean, and that's said to be the size of a penny. So again, if it's less than that size, no problem. Okay. Now I want to take you through the technical stuff a little bit, and then we'll talk about the spiritual stuff. Let's assume that it is the right shade of white and it is the right size. So what then happens? The Kohen puts the man or the woman or the child, of course if it's a mother and a baby, you have to bring the mother with the baby, in quarantine for seven days. Seven days. It's not a complete, it's not as a complete a quarantine as you would imagine. They, they actually are allowed visitors. Visitors can come. But, but they're kind of quarantined chutz away from the community. And nothing happens for those seven days. They're just quarantined. On day seven, assuming it's not Shabbos, if it's Shabbos, it would be the next day, the Kohen reinspects the person. Now, if the Tsaras is gone, or even if it's not gone, but if it's shrunk to less than the bean, he goes home, no problem. If, however, so there are three possibilities on day seven. He goes home, he is quarantined for another seven days, or he is upgraded to a definitive mitzvah. So let's go through the possibilities. If the tzaras is gone, or it's less than a bean, he goes home. End of, end of process. No korbanos, no nothing. If, on the other hand, there's one of three additional signs on the tzara, 
he now becomes a definitive Mitzorah who will not be able to become pure until he brings sacrifices and shaves all of his hair, which might be a long time. Now, what are the three? These are called simonim of Tuma, signs of impurity, and any one of the three will count. Sign number one is that there were black hairs, let's say it's on his arm, there were black hairs in the area covered by the nega, and those black hairs have now turned white. Two black hairs turned white is simen tuma number one. Simen tuma number two is pisayon, that means the nega is bigger than it was. It was a bean, and now it's a bean and a half. And simen tuma number three, which sounds, you know, it doesn't, you would think this should be an improvement, but it's actually not, is in the middle of the solid white nega, there materialized a patch of fresh skin, clean skin, meaning the area was originally white, and now there's good skin in the middle of the white. Now, you think that would be a good sign, it is not, you'll see. That is called michia. So, the three simone tuma are sar lavan, white hair, although sar is singular, but it's two saros that are white. Uh, that's simon tuma number one. Simon tuma number two is pisayon, which is expansion of the nega. And simen tuma number three is michya, which is healthy flesh within the nega. If the Mitzayra has, on day seven, any one of those three signs, he now becomes a definitive Mitzayra, and even if the nega then goes away later, he'll have to bring sacrifices and birds and body shaving and korbanos, all those things. That's called a muchlat. Muchlat is a definitive mitzvah. Now, what if he still has the nega, but he doesn't have any of those three signs? He's then quarantined for another week. Another week. And the Kohen examines him at the end of the second week. And you have the same three possibilities. Uh, if the nega is gone, he go, or, or shrinks below the beam, he goes free. If the nega has any one of the three simonim of Tuma, he's muchlat. But here, if there's still a nega, but there's no simon Tuma, by the end of the second week, he also goes home. Meaning, he can actually go home having the tsaras. He still has the tsaras, the original tsaras that he had, he still has. But if it doesn't have the simonim of Tuma, by the end of the second week, he goes home. He's not a Mitzvah anymore. Okay, this is the basic structure of what is called Saras or Basar. Or is with an ayin. Or Basar means Saras of the skin. Mm. Now, it gets real complicated because there's other types of Saras. There's Saras in hairy areas and there's Saras on the scalp. And then there's Saras that comes from burns or bruises. Different halachas. Then there's saras of garments and saras of houses. So many details. But we'll talk about, no pun intended, plain vanilla saras, meaning the regular saras of the flesh. And this is how it works. Up to two weeks of quarantine with one of three simanim of tuma. So the question is, uh, what, what lessons can we take from this? What, uh, what hadracha 
what Hairah in, in Avodah Hashem. Can all of this apply? So all of us know, the Rambam made the point a long time ago, and the Rambam was a doctor, that sometimes people think that the quarantine of a Mitzayra is because it's a contagious disease, and you have to quarantine people so the disease would not spread. And it was an, it was an you know, this COVID, all this stuff, uh, that uh, this was an early example of public health to prevent the spread of disease. The Rambam, who himself was a doctor, said that's not possible. And the proof that this is not possible, that Saras is not contagious physically. I could be next to him at Sarah, I'm not going to get a disease from him. And the proof of that is from a very interesting halacha. It is brought down that there are times that a Kohen is not supposed to paskin that somebody's a Mitzrayim. Because that would ruin the joy of an occasion. An example would be, on Yomta for Cholomoed. If somebody goes to the Kohen and says, I have this thing on my hand, is this Saras? The Kohen says, come back to me after Yomta for Cholomoed. Why? Because we don't want to ruin the joy of Yom Tif by proclaiming somebody a Mitzvah. Because then he has to go into quarantine. Or a Chasna and a Kala. Chasna and a Kala get married. And the day after the Chasna, the Chasan or the Kala has Saras. They go to the Kohen. The Kohen says, come back to me after the seven days of rejoicing. Because we're not going to deal with this during your Simcha. Now, if Saraz is a contagious disease, that makes no sense. That thing says we don't want to know. We don't want to know if you're sick uh, because then we'd have to separate you. Just, I mean, some people have that attitude. <laughs> I'll make a gigantic wedding. Oh, I don't want to get tested. Uh, okay, but you understand that that's uh, not, not that's not a sensible attitude. Uh, if you're exposing people to serious illness because you don't want to get tested, then that's irresponsible. So for the halacha to say. Oh, don't check out your tzoras during your seven days of rejoicing because we don't want to spoil your happiness. You know, that would be like not getting a COVID test or worse and going to a gigantic wedding and the like. So the Rambam says, from here it's very, very clear that we are not talking about contagious disease. Rather, tzoras, as you know, is a physical manifestation of a spiritual flaw within a person. It's like a report card for my life. And there are different Averas for which Saras comes, but the most common Avera is said to be Loshon Hara. And the Ramban, Nachmanides, actually writes, based on this idea, Saras is actually a favor for Hashem because it gives you feedback as to what you need to correct. You know, a person always says, if only Hashem would tell me what I need to do. Saras is one of the ways Hashem tells you. And that's why the Ramban says Saras only existed when there was prophecy in the world. Because Saras is a form of communication. Again, maybe it's a communication we don't, we'd rather not have, but it's Hashem talking to you and telling you what you have to do. You know, it's Nevoah. It's a form of Nevoah. It's a form of prophecy giving you the message of what you need to fix. Now, L'chaira, I think it's a Deborah Pashat, that not everybody who spoke Lashon Hara got Saras. 
I mean, if every time you spoke Rosh Hashanah, you got saras, then presumably all of the Jewish people almost would be lepers, would be with saras. And as far as we know, we don't have numbers exactly, but saras never seems to have been a common thing. Miriam had saras because of Lashon Hara, etc. So, uh, so what, what? So who decides? In other words, what, what, what criteria does Hakadosh Baruch Hu use? In other words, saras comes from Lashon Hara. So I'm not sure. Uh, maybe only the worst people who speak Lashon Hara get it, or maybe the other way around. Maybe it's a punishment only to the tzaddikim who are, you know, nichshal a little bit, the average person, you know, speaks so much Lashonara that it wouldn't make sense to make him a Mitzayra every day. So I'm not sure what the criteria were, uh, but clearly it was selective. And Hashem chose people to have saras. It was not something that happened to everybody. So, saras of the flesh is for the sin of Lashonara. Saras on garments, which we're not going to talk about, is for the sin of gasus ruach, which is gaiva, because clothing is often a way of boasting. And saras on, on uh, buildings, on homes, which again, we're not going to talk about, that comes from chemdas hamamon. Chemdas hamamon means that you're so selfish about your money that you don't want to share with anybody. So when your house becomes a saras, you have to take everything out of your house so everybody sees all your treasures, all your jewels, all your possessions, uh, kind of as a kind you know, so people know, oh, here's a selfish person who didn't want to share anything, etc. So the, those are the basic three. Saras haguf is Lashon Hara. Saras habagadim is Gasus Ruach. Saras habayas is Chemdas Hamamon, lust for money or for property and the like. But we're not going to talk about bias and baggage, we're just going to talk about Adam. And what I want to discuss is the meaning of the three simonim of Tuma and the whole ritual. So, the Rambam says, if indeed the quarantine of the Mitzvah is not because of contagious disease, so what is it for? It's designed to give him an opportunity to do tshuva, to reflect, to meditate, to understand the damage that a person does by Lashon Hara. And indeed, that's why he's Badafka isolated. Because Lashon Hara creates isolation. It creates machlokas, hatred, animosity. It can break up friendships. So we want him to experience what it's like to be alone, to be isolated. So he could feel the pain that he might have caused other people. And that brings a person to tshuva because he's margish, the pain that he caused others. So then he realizes how bad it was, you know. The thing that all of our parents probably told us, uh, uh, sticks and stones may break my bones. I don't know if they still use it. Maybe your parents didn't. But, <laughs> but the names will never hurt me. It's an old saying, right? It's an old uh, English saying that, you know, sticks and stones can break my bones, but names are not going to hurt me. But we know, unfortunately, that's very, very far from true. That lehepech. Sometimes the sticks and the stones, you know, your bones can heal. Children heal quickly. Broken leg. Adults take a little longer, but kids, where Hashem, are usually pretty fast. But the pain that comes from insult and embarrassment, humiliation, shame, that can be with you, mamash, your whole life. Your whole life. Things that happen when you're five or ten, 
eat on you. I remember seeing an interview with uh, Richard Nixon, President Nixon, who you know left uh, the presidency in great disgrace. But although he was he was good to the Jews, and uh, you know we we actually uh, you know he was did a lot of good things for Israel. Uh, but and towards the end of his life, he kind of, he kind of got semi redeemed. He was giving interviews, and he was an elder statesman, you know, etc. But whatever it is, at one point, uh, a reporter was asking him about different things, and Nixon had gone through everything. I mean, he resigned the presidency of the United States in disgrace. Like, what bigger embarrassment kind of, kind of can there be? Like, such a humiliation. But he was talking about the playground insults that he experienced when he was in sixth grade, and they were still bothering him. Now, that's a little scary, that people who control nuclear weapons and, and the like, you know, part of their thought processes are connected to what happened in sixth grade. But the truth of the matter is that that, 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 that actually is true. So uh, I guess you're older now, but when you have kids, tell your kids, be careful how they treat their uh, classmates. In elementary school, you never know what they're gonna become and uh, the types of decisions they can make. And uh, if you push somebody, maybe there'll be a war because uh, 30 years later, uh, because of what you did, right? Those things have to, I mean, and this is true. If you look at Hitler's life and look at Saddam Hussein, I mean, a lot of things were formed as uh, children, certain personality traits and the like. Of course, there's Bechir, of course there's free will, and of course, uh, every person is high of uh, not to do evil things, but to some degree, uh, some of the forces are implanted in, in childhood. So that is why the Mitzvah is in isolation, to realize what it means, the pain that he caused. Okay, so the purpose of the quarantine is cheshbon hanefesh, spiritual accounting. But when we start doing a cheshbon hanefesh, there are three excuses that we invent so we don't have to take responsibility for what we did. And the simon of Tuma is an external sign to the Kohen, so the Kohen knows that this guy is doing one of the three things that he shouldn't be doing. Because the Kohen can't read your mind. So Hashem allows these signs to tell the Kohen what's going on inside, and then the Kohen says, go back and go back into quarantine and continue your cheshbon nefesh. The very first thing that we try to do is we deny, to ourselves at least, that we did anything wrong. So in the case of Lashonara, it could be the following. I didn't do anything wrong. Everything I said is true. Now, you know, of course, halachically, that Bichlau doesn't make, doesn't mean anything because the whole Israel of Lashonara is even if it's true. But still, people tell themselves, it's true, what I said is true. There's nothing wrong with what I said. Or a person might say, the guy is much worse than I said. I only said part of what he is. Or a person might say, he says bad things about me all the time. Now that, in addition to Lashon Hara, is also an Avera of taking revenge. <laughs> so that adds to the Avera. So none of these are real defenses, but they're kind of the excuses we give ourselves. I didn't do anything wrong. It was true. I could have said worse. He does worse things to me, etc. Now, in English, one of the words we use for trying to cover something up, denying it, is whitewashing, whitewashing. <laughs> so the two white hairs is a sign that this person hasn't acknowledged 
responsibility to himself, not to other people, has not acknowledged to Hashem and to himself that he's responsible, he's still living in the world of denial, therefore we make him tummy. He stays until the tzaras goes away and he has to bring korbanos because he needs to complete the tshuva process. So that is the meaning of the simen tumah of the two white hairs, and that is denial. There'll be three D- Ds here. Denial is uh, D number one. Hmm. Now, there's a second defense mechanism that we have, and that actually works the opposite way. Uh, that is despair. This is the opposite of denial. Denial, the person tells himself, I didn't do anything wrong. Despair is the opposite idea. I am so hyper aware of my sins that I think there is no hope for Shiva. I am beyond the point of no return. I don't deny what I did. The other, other way around. I know what I did. But I have no way out. I'm in despair. And if you look uh, in the Tanya and the Igeris HaTshuva, you see the Alter Rebbe talks quite a lot about the idea that a person has to have this complete amuna in Hashem, that Hashem will always forgive. If you're sincere, He will always forgive you, no matter how many times you've sinned, if you truly want to do tshuva, if you're sincere at that moment. Now, the attitude of despair is so destructive because with despair you might say, What's the use of even stopping my affairs? I might as well keep on going because there's no way I can stop. That's symbolized by the nega spreading. It's bigger. Meaning, eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we shall die. As the Pusik says, right? Actually, it's the Pusik that's saying. So that's the idea of despair. So once again, we tell the guy, go back into your cave and think about this because you're never, you don't despair. Just like you have to take responsibility, you also have to know that you can do tshuva uh, as, as well. You know, this is the meaning of a medrash. There's a famous medrash that when a Kodesh Baruch Hu asked Adam Rishayim, uh, who told you that you were naked? Right? After the Yichid of the Yitzhadat. And uh, Hashem said, did you eat from the fruit that I told you not to eat from? And Adam Rishayim said, Ochalti, I ate. Uh, first of all, he blames Hashem. He says, he blames his wife and he blames Hashem. He says, the wife that you gave me gave it to me to eat. <laughs> this is a double blame, right? <laughs> she made me do it and you gave her to me. So it's your fault. But then the Medrash says, he says something even more. He said, yeah, I ate and I'll eat again. <laughs> wow, you know, <laughs> that's kind of a nervy response. HaKadosh Baruch Hu catches you in the act. He said, did you do it? He says, yeah, I did it and I'll do it again. <laughs> what type of what type, <laughs> you know what type of uh, what, what type of talk is that? But the truth is, there's something very very deep here. He didn't say it the way I said it. He didn't say it defiantly. He said it with a broken heart. He said, "Once I brought the Yetzirah into me, I know I'm gonna fail. I don't know how to stop it." Adam was saying to Hashem, and this was a mistake, but he's saying, this is uncontrollable. I can't control this Nevesh Bahamas or Yetzirah or whatever you want to call it. It's in me now. 
And Adam mistakenly is saying, it's taken me over. So it's very, very different. He is not defying Hashem. <coughs> he is realizing what enormous trouble he's in. Because it is now a force that I feel I have no control. In Hebrew, this would be called yeyush, right? Yeyush is mm-hmm. giving up up. But sometimes it feels that that's the way it is. But that's wrong. Right? You never give up hope. You never give up hope. Because no matter how far gone a person is, the gates of tshuva are always open. So, if the nega expands, the rat gets bigger, that's because the person has despaired. We tell them, go back into isolation because you haven't done your work. Now, there's a, so, so, so one defense mechanism we have is denial. The other defense mechanism is despair, in which I feel there's nothing I can do. The third, I'm gonna give it a third D, which is called distance. Now this is a little different, it's a little subtle. Distance is often a person who's a type two personality, or type two in the sense of he gets overwhelmed with guilt, so the only way they'll survive is they don't allow themselves to think about their Aveira. They don't deny it. They just say, I can't, the person would say, I can't go there now because it hurts too much. I don't want to go there now. That's not denial. That's what we'll call emotional distancing. Now, of the three mechanisms, one is denial, one is despair. One is emotional distancing. The truth of the matter is the third one is a little different than the other two. The other two are always wrong. Emotional distancing, in point of fact, does have a place in life. Sometimes if a person is so overwhelmed with Averos that they can't move forward, the answer will sometimes be, don't think about your Averos that much. In other words, sometimes that is a good thing to do. Don't think about it that much and build up your Kedusha, right? Attack the, the darkness by generating light rather than fighting the darkness. So the third excuse, so to speak, has a certain legitimacy that the other two don't have. But even so, that's a short term rather than long term, meaning eventually when you get spiritually stronger, you look at your Averis and do a cheshbon nefesh, even if initially you have to push it off. So that is symbolized by the michya, the healthy flesh. Because you might say, why would healthy flesh inside of a nega be a bad sign? I would think it's a good sign. No, because it means you're surrounded by rot, rotting flesh, but you don't let it penetrate your life. You don't let it penetrate your panemius. That means you're distancing yourself and you're not really looking at what you need to be misaking. So, Bikitzer, you understand, the three signs of Tuma that make a person a Mitzayra are signs that he hasn't gone through the requisite cheshbon nefesh, either because he's denied to himself that he did something wrong, or he has despaired that he could fix it, or he's not letting himself think about it. Now, if after two weeks he still has the nega, but he doesn't have the simon of tumah, we let him go home because we tell him 
He's doing tshuva, but he hasn't finished it yet. But he's doing the process. He can do it outpatient. He can do it at home. He doesn't have to be in a controlled condition anymore. And that's why we can send him home with the tzaras. Because if he doesn't have the three simonim of tuma, the tshuva is going in the right direction. And he can finish it. He can finish it at, uh, at home. Okay? So this is the lekach, so to speak, of, of, of the simone tuma of the mitzvah. If he goes home with two of the three signs, or... No, no, any, any one, no, no. If he has any one of the three, he he's home. No, 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 no. In order for him to go home, he cannot have any of and, the okay. signs. But after two weeks? No, after two weeks. If he has any one of the signs, he is a, a Mitzayra. Oh. Yeah, in other words, in order for him to go home after one week? Yeah. No, so after one week, if he has no signs, he's quarantined for another week. But at the end of the second week, he goes home only if he has no sign at all. If he has any one of the signs, he's upgraded to a Matsuya. Okay? And if he has no signs, then it's a sign that he's doing his tuba process, right? Yeah, that's what I'm and saying. He can continue. Okay. So even if he has the saras, he can go home because he's doing the tuba process correctly. Right? But if he has any one of the signs, that means either he's in denial or he's uh, despair or he's emotionally distancing himself. So even if it stayed the same size and it looks the same still, he could still go home after... That's correct, that's correct. Even if it looks exactly the same, if it hasn't grown. If it's grown, then it's one of the signs of tumor. Right. That's correct. So people don't realize this. A person could leave the status of Mitzorah with the very same Tzoras that he became a Mitzorah. He can leave it if it did not have one of the simonim of tumor. Okay. And then does he need to be purified after seven days? No, 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 not at all. Uh, the, the whole purification ritual is only if, after one week or after two weeks, he has one of the simanim of tumah. Okay. Then he needs the whole purification ritual. If he goes home after two weeks, if he has no simanim of tumah, even if he has the saras, there is no purification ritual he needs at all. He's just not of the already. Okay? Mm. So this is something to think about. Now, what's interesting is that this Parsha is normally read after Pesach, because Pesach would have been earlier. In a leap year, where Pesach is a month later, so we read this Parsha before Pesach. But it's interesting that there are some interesting lessons that are connected to Chametz. All of us know Chametz is, Pesach is bad, right? And Chametz is the Yetzir Hara. But what in Chametz is connected to Ra. What in Chametz is connected to the notion of the Yetzir Hara? So there's actually three explanations that are given. What is the Shaykhus? What is the connection of Chametz to Ra? Uh, explanation number one is probably the, the best known. Chametz is puffed up, uh, air full of air. Uh, Matzah is flat. So Chametz represents gaiva, arrogance, ego. Matzah represents humility and submission. That's probably the best well-known idea that Chametz is gaiva and Matzah is anava. Mm-hmm. Of course, if you ever see the... Uh, uh, well, it depends. If you, if you don't eat the gabruks, then you're not going to have this problem. But those who <laughs> eat gabruks, uh, they have all sorts of things they make now with uh, matzah meal. They make... Um, puffed up rolls, and they make Pesach rolls. Uh, yes, I don't know if everyone here uh, keeps, keeps Kibrach, so, you know, you, so you don't, you, you've never seen this, but you know, 
if you see uh, some of the stuff they sell for Pesach, it looks exactly like bread. It's like, doesn't taste like bread necessarily, but uh, it looks exactly like bread. So the notion of matzah is not puffed up, you know, never saw one of these Pesach rolls. But at least, I, but at least ideally, you know, matzah is flat and chametz is puffed up. Gaidu. So that actually corresponds to the simen tumah of denial, because when a person denies that they've done any Averis, they're basically saying, I'm too good to be guilty of sins. I didn't do that. So, in a sense, the first problem of Chamech corresponds to the first simintuma of the white hairs, of the black hairs turning white, because it's denial that comes from gaiva and arrogance. Now, there's a deeper point here, which, uh, which is really more of a psychological point, and that is, in truth, Gaiva and arrogance actually often come from low self-esteem rather than high self-esteem. And it's interesting that sometimes when a person is very, very insecure about themselves, they need to portray themselves as great and important and the like. So sometimes arrogance is actually correlated with a very poor image of yourself uh, instead of a healthy self-image. If you have a healthy self-image, you don't necessarily need to be arrogant and boastful. Okay, that's an interesting psychological point. But at least externally, chametz represents gaiva. Okay. Now, the second aspect that chametz represents is that chametz rots as opposed to matzah that doesn't rot. If you have a piece of bread, bread eventually produces mold. And in fact, you get penicillin from, I think, bread mold. So. Even a bacteria, even mold can have a positive function. But nevertheless, it rots, it spoils. Matzah does not spoil. You can have matzah from Masada, you know, 2,000 years ago. It probably would still be edible. Sometimes it feels like that, that is the matzah you're getting, you know, and, and the like. So matzah doesn't spoil. So ra is something that spoils. It gets worse and worse and worse with time. So that corresponds to the second simon of the Mitzvah, the hopelessness of rat, of spreading, which represents yish and hopelessness. Now, the third connection of Muhammad's with Ra... Can you explain that all the time, please? Yeah, in other words, the idea is that uh, we're trying to just explain three reasons why Muhammad's is connected to the Yetzir Hara. One reason is because chametz is puffed up and it's gaiva, and matzah is flat, so it's modesty, humility. The second reason is that chametz can turn rotten. Chametz spoils. Matzah does not spoil. And I'm connecting that one to the second sign of Tumah of the Mitzvah, where the nega expands, the rot increases, just like spoiling of chametz. Right, the rot increases, and that represents the idea of giving up hope that you could ever achieve a tikkun. Right, that's hopelessness. So uh, the first uh, meaning of chametz is arrogance. The second meaning of chametz is the hopelessness of believing that things could be better, so it just gets worse and worse and worse. Now, the third meaning of chametz, Maral says, Maral says, that chametz represents inertia and inaction. What do we mean? If water hits flour, you don't have to do anything to make it chametz. 
You don't need yeast. Some people think you need yeast. You do not. You do not need a starter. It's automatic. Halakhically, if the water is on the flour for 18 minutes, it is now chametz. Chametz does not require action. Chametz is the product of inaction. By contrast, when you want to make matzah, you got to bake it, meaning I got to take this wet dough and put it in an oven before 18 minutes are up. So the morale says, this reminds us that richuk from Hashem, distance from God, isn't only when you do averos, actual averos, but when you don't think about doing good, you don't think about doing mitzvahs. In other words, inertia, a laziness, not right, just distancing yourself. So that's essentially corresponding to emotional distancing. I don't think about my relationship to God. I let things slide. Not that I intentionally rebel against Him. I don't have kavana to rebel against Him. But I just let things slide. I don't think about it. That's what chametz is. A lot of ra in the world comes from simply not thinking about what we need to do, to be like an evan, to be like a stone, and the like. So the three connections of chametz to Ra actually correspond to the three simonim of Tuma of a, of a Mitzvah. Right? So, 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 so it is interesting that there is a Pesach connection uh, to all of these inyanim of, of, of Tzoraz. Um, okay, so that, that was the thought I wanted to share with you about Tzoraz. Now to go backwards a little bit though, in the same parsha, when the Torah talks about, right before the Torah talks about Saras, the Torah talks about another Tuma, and that is the Tuma of childbirth, a woman who gives birth to a child. Now this, this is a little more Nogeo Lahalacha. I want to go over what the Torah says, and then go over what we do today, because what we do today is not uh, the same as what the Torah says, so it might be a little, a little confusing. The Torah says, when a woman gives birth to a child, she is in a state of impurity. We'll discuss what that term means in a moment. But there's a, there are two levels of the impurity. There's level one, level two, and each of them will differ between a boy and a girl. The level one impurity is she is forbidden for a certain number of days from being intimate with her husband. That's level one. Separation from husband. For a boy, that is a seven-day period. For a girl, it is a 14-day period, double. That's level one. After seven days for a boy, she goes to the mikvah. Now, she goes to the mikvah uh, after the seven days. And after seven days, after 14 days for a girl, she goes to the mikvah. At that point, Tuma number level one is over. She's allowed to be with her husband. There is a second level of Tuma, which for a boy will be another 33 days. When added to the first, that's 40. And with a girl, another 66 days, where even though she's allowed to be with her husband, she is not allowed to go to the Beis Hamikdash or eat korbanos. The girl is 60 days? Yep, 66. So 
And, and the second level, by the way, is also included in the first level. So for the first seven days, you also can't go to the base of Mikdash or read Karbana. So that means the second level of Tumah for a boy is 40 days, and for a girl is 80 days. And then on the 41st day from the birth of a boy, or the 81st day from the birth of a girl, she brings a burnt offering and a sin offering, and then she is permitted access to the base of Mikdash. So these are two levels of Tumah. The first seven or 14, she is prohibited to her husband. The next 33 and 66, she is permitted with her husband, but she is allowed to, I'm sorry, she's not allowed to go to the Beis HaMikdash or the Mishkan or eat Korbanos until day 41 or day 81, uh, when she, where she brings offerings and then she is now permitted to go to the temple. So the 33 or 66 days, do they only start once she's permitted to her husband or do they start from when she gives birth? Oh, no, no, they, they, they start only after she's permitted to her husband. That, that's why you get 40 altogether, because it's 7, and then followed by 33, 14, and then followed by 66. That's how you get the uh, 40 and the 80. Right. Because 7, Cause 30, right, 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 right. I just meant to say that whatever restriction she has in the extra 33, she also has in the first 7. So when she's tummy for the first 7, or in the case of a girl, for the first 14, she also cannot go to the Beis HaMikdash or have Korbanas, right? So I, I, did, I just meant to say that the Beis HaMikdash prohibitions don't begin after the seven, they begin right away, mm-hmm. okay? Now, the Torah also says an interesting rule, and this is very interesting, that during the 33 for a boy and 66 for a girl, even if she menstruates and sees blood, she does not become a nida. So on one hand, she can't, she can't go to the base of Mikdash, even if she didn't see blood. But on the other hand, uh, the laws of nida do not apply after the 7 and the 14 to any blood that she sees. This is a special Gezeira Sakosov, and this is called Dam Tohar. Dam Tohar is pure blood, blood that does not render a woman a nida, even though it comes from the uterine lining. It's not like traumatic blood, like a cut or something. This mamish comes from the uterus. It's the after-bleeding of birth. It's called dam what? Dam tohar. Tesvav heresh. Dam tohar just means a blood of uh, purification. Uh, it is blood that does not have any nida mm-hmm. associations. And that actually means even if she's bleeding, even if uh, she's menstruating, the tech wouldn't be menstruation, but whatever it presses is very similar. The husband and wife are allowed to be together. She does have the temporal restrictions, but that she would have even if she wouldn't be bleeding. Okay? Now, if this sounds totally, I don't know if you have ever learned the halachos of what applies there, if this sounds totally unfamiliar yeah. uh, to uh, women after childbirth today, uh, that is 100% correct. Uh, the halacha is in the Shulchan Arach, that we no longer rely on Dam Tohar today, and therefore a woman is not allowed to go to the mikvah and be with her husband until she is no longer bleeding at all, 
And she has to have seven clean days without bleeding. And typically, that may not be until, uh, that, that may be two months. That may, uh, it'll be within the, before the 80 days typically, but it may be after the 40 days anyway, right? So typically, a, a woman will generally, again, every woman might be different. Technically, or typically, a woman will not be with her husband again till around six weeks after childbirth because they're still going to be bleeding and still going to be uh, shedding of the uterine lining, etc. And even though under Torah law that would be Dam Tohar and that wouldn't be a problem, but since we treat Dam Tohar like Dam Nida, so we have to have the seven clean days. So that's why this halakha you're not going to follow. But in theory, in theory, if a woman could get a hepsiktara uh, seven days after, uh, I'm sorry, well, as soon as she gets the hepsiktara, she counts seven clean days, then she can go to the mikvah. I mean, she, she can do a hepsiktara even within the seven days, theoretically, uh, but then we'd have to have seven clean days to be able to go to the, to the mikvah. Yeah? Why, um, why does the woman wait different of time? Okay, so now let's focus on this a little bit. Let's ask three questions, really. Uh, question number one, why is a woman after childbirth impure? What is impure about childbirth? First of all, what, what does impurity mean anyway? Tuma. And second of all, whatever it means, why would we apply it to a woman after childbirth? Number one. Number two, why is there a difference in Tuma periods between a boy and a girl? That's your question. And number three, uh, what is the sacrifice that a woman brings? Okay, so number one, Tuma. This is a very important point. Rav, Rav Hirsch, Rav Shushnafal Hirsch says the following, and this is connected to, we talked about Paraduma. That is, all Tuma is connected with death. Death. Whenever you encounter death, you become Tame. And the reason is because death came into the world because of the sin. So every time we reconnect to death, we get re-expelled from Gan Eden. Now the Gan Eden HaTachtain, I know it goes 770 sometimes, but the Gan Eden in Chazal is a reference to the Beis HaMikdash. The Beis HaMikdash is called Gan Eden HaTachtain. So that's why a Tomei person is expelled from the Beis HaMikdash because it's a re-expulsion from Gan Eden when you encounter death. Now, here's the problem. I understand that certain tumas are connected to death. You touch a dead body, you touch a dead animal. Even a seminal emission of a man is connected to death because the semen potentially could have created life. And menstruation could be connected to death because it represents the shedding of a uterine lining that could have sustained a pregnancy. Right? So a lot of tuma is connected to death. But why would childbirth be connected to death? Childbirth is the other way around. Yeah. You brought life into the world. So if Hirsch says something that's uh, a little unusual, he actually says that although childbirth brings life into the world, it actually is a destruction of the life that was within the woman. That there was a life within the body, and that life is no longer here. This is a new thing that's out there. But the life within, there's a certain void. There's a void that was created because the womb is no longer sustaining a life. 
Actually, in Kabbalah, you can understand this even more deeper because when the baby was in the womb, there was a special relationship with a malach that was teaching it Torah. And that has died. That relationship has died. So Mimela refers says that childbirth itself is a death experience. At the same time it creates life, it is an experience of a death within. And that's why there's tumor. Ah, so now, why are girls double the period? Right? So for a boy, the woman is Tamea for a 7 and a 33. For a girl, the woman is Tamea for a 14 and a 66. So listen to this. Refer says, because if you look at the childbirth as death, so when the boy is born, there's only one life that's being terminated in the womb. In a girl, do you know that even a fetus has all of the eggs in her ovaries that she will ever need her whole life, ever use in her whole life? So in every female goof, there is not only her life, but all of the life that will be able to come from her. By a boy, that's not true because a baby does not have sperm. Sperm does not develop until uh, puberty. But eggs are all there. In fact, I think I may have mentioned this, um, it is theoretically possible, I think it has been done, to retrieve eggs for infertile women who need egg donation. Uh, eggs can be harvested from aborted female fetuses who were never born. That means a baby that was never born can be the parent of a million people, theoretically. You can harvest a million eggs. You can mature them, etc. You can harvest a million eggs from an aborted female fetus. Talk about yichus, like you know, who's your mother? You know, my, my mother never lived. <laughs> but mother even then, you would still have to. I mean, the the fetus would have to reach a certain stage of development. And I don't know well, 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 a certain, a certain, no, 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 a certain stage. I don't mean if you abort a baby at uh, two weeks, you know, but whatever. But but certainly, uh, by the end of the second trimester, and a lot of abortions are done towards the end of the second trimester. There are ovaries and, and eggs by that point. I mean, you're correct. I mean, at a very, very early stage, that's not going to happen. Uh, but it doesn't have to be a nine month. I mean, after uh, five or six months, uh, ovaries and eggs are going to be going to be there. So a purse says, therefore, the, uh, the expulsion of a girl from the womb is a double death. Her death and the death of all of the life within. Um, now, why does, why, does a woman bring, uh, why does a woman bring a korban? So you might think, oh, it's a Thanksgiving offering. It's a Torah, Thanksgiving for birth. But if you look in the Torah, the Torah actually describes that she brings a sin offering, a chatas, not a toda. Toda and chatas are two different korbanos, right? Two different korbanos. So here Rashi brings that the woman has to bring an atonement because uh, labor pains are so hard that she might have taken an oath that she'll never do this again. And therefore she needs to atone uh, for that pain. You know, it's an interesting issue about this. You know, when uh, anesthesia came out for women in childbirth in the uh, 1800s, so there were some Christian theologians, all of whom were men, that actually said, women are not allowed to take anesthesia. Why? Because Hashem cursed Chava, 
that she will give birth in pain. So what gives you the right to take away the pain? That's their time. They were against anesthesia for women. So, what do, what, what do we say? What would the Torah say? I mean, Chayra, they have a point. Hashem said, you will give birth in pain. So what gives us the right? So, you have to understand something. There is a difference between a curse and a mitzvah. If Hashem would have commanded Chava, I command you, you must suffer, <laughs> then you're right. Hashem commanded, I must suffer. I mean, there's no such commandment. If Hashem commanded, I must suffer, then I have to suffer. Hashem didn't command. Hashem just said, it is the nature of things that after the chayt, childbirth will be a painful experience. It's the nature that I'm going but we have rishus, the same way if we're sick, we can go to a doctor. We have permission to ameliorate, to mitigate, because pain is the teva of things, but it's not a chiv that's on us to go through that pain. So we're permitted to mitigate it. We don't have to, yeah, the analogy would be going to a doctor. Right? Christian scientists say, you're not supposed to go to a doctor because God made you sick. That's what they say, they do not go to a doctor. If God made you sick, what gives you the right to, to try to change that? We say no, Hashem gave me a chayli, but I, I, I can make hishtadlis. In the same way I make hishtadlis to, make, uh, to earn parnasa. the Torah gives me rishus to make hishtadlis to try to get better. And if Hashem doesn't want me to get better, I won't get better. I mean, that's the, that's the mistake in Christian science. See, Christian science is saying, oh, God made you sick, so what gives you the right to try to change that? Our answer is, if God didn't want me to get better, I wouldn't get better. So I'm not rebelling against Hashem. If it works, then that was the that was the on Hashem too. Mm-hmm. So I'm not against it. I'm not, you know, I mean, the Christian science is almost saying, I could do something against the will of Hashem. The truth is you can't, right? So Mimela, that's why we, the Torah says, a doctor is given permission to practice medicine. And that is why we say as well that women can take anesthesia for childbirth. <laughs> and I'll give you an analogy to this. Do you remember the uh, story in the Torah when Yaakov is wrestling with the Malach, the angel of Esav? And uh, sometimes Yaakov is on top and sometimes Esav uh, is on top, or the angel of Esav. In the morning, finally Yaakov is winning, but the angel hits Yaakov on the thigh and Yaakov is limping. And that's why we don't eat the Gid HaNosheh, the sciatic nerve, to remember the fact that the angel of Esau had almost beaten Yaakov, but uh, Yaakov was, was saved. Now, it's interesting, the Zayar HaKadosh says the following. Yaakov represents the Koach of Torah learning. Avraham, the world stands on three pillars, Kirk says. Torah, divine service, loving kindness. Avraham is the pillar of loving kindness. Yitzchak, who was a korban, is the pillar of Avoda. Yaakov, who spent 14 years in the yeshiva of Shem Eber, represents the koach of Torah. So, the Zayar says, the angel of Esau wants to destroy Torah from B'nai Yisrael, that B'nai Yisrael should not learn Torah. But he wasn't able to do it, because there will always be Jews who will learn Torah, no matter how hard the conditions the angel of Esav could not take away the power of Torah from Am Yisrael. But what did he take away? The thigh. 
The thigh supports the body. So the Zohar says, the angel of Asaph could not take away Torah, but he could weaken the support of Torah. The thigh is limping. And therefore, it is the curse of Asaph that Torah learning will always be financially in trouble. And the Chavitz Chaim used to say, if there's any yeshiva or seminary that does not have financial problems, you have to be concerned that they're not an authentic Torah institution. Because if they were authentic, they would be struggling financially. Because this <laughs> was what Asif did. So, Baruch Hashem, you know, it is uh, way up there. So, we can be very happy with uh, our, our seminary and our yeshiva. Okay. All right. So now, this is the muscle I want to give you. So let's assume the yeshiva, my is trying to collect money, or Sameach trying to collect money, and I say, hey, I'm not supposed to give you money. You're, spo- you're supposed to be poor. <laughs> After all, that is the curse that Hashem allowed Esau to inflict upon us. The answer is, once again, Hashem didn't make it a commandment. I command you to be poor. Hashem said it'll be the nature of Torah learning that its financial support will be, precar- will be weak and precarious. Okay? But we have an achrayas. That's the way the world is. We have an achrayas to, to make it as good as we can do it. Right? It really is true, if you think about it. You know, there's a lot of money in the world. I mean, if you think about... Uh, I, mean, I mean, it's amazing. You know, so many poor people, so, a lot of poverty, but a lot of wealth, a lot of wealth, so much money in the world. And you think about billions and billions of dollars on entertainments, on movies, and on this, and on that, and on that. And somehow, you know, yeshivos, people are starving, and seminaries, and, and uh, like, you know, there's enough money around, but somehow it doesn't really come. Uh, I mean, Chabad is a little better than a lot of other places, but everybody's struggling. Everybody, every, every activity of Kedusha struggles, and all the activities that are not Kaddish, they seem to be doing fine. That's an amazing thing, but this is connected to the Saroshalase of the Zohar says that we're limping on our th- that uh, we're limping on our thigh, that the thigh is not going to support the, the goof. Uh, that's kind of what it is. That no matter how much money there is in the world, Torah is going to be bereft of financial financial support. So uh, once again, to the same way that we still have to support Torah, so so too women can get anesthesia in childbirth and and in the life. Alrighty, so now let me go backwards again. I just, because I just wanted to clarify something. Nothing, nothing to do with what we were talking about at all, but I just wanted to go backwards. Uh, we were talking about issues of, of Tomas Mace last uh, week, and I, I think maybe I was not clear about something. I just want to clarify this. If you remember, uh, when you have a corpse, a human corpse, a dead body, uh, there are three ways you can become Tame by contact with the corpse. Number one, by touching the corpse. Number two, by moving the corpse, even if you didn't touch it. And number three, by being under the same roof as the corpse, even if you didn't touch it or move it. If, God forbid, there would be a dead body in this room, I would be Tomeh, okay? But here is the thing that you need to know, that if I move a corpse or touch a corpse, I'll be Tomeh no matter what. But when I'm, in a, when I'm under the same roof as a corpse, if the corpse is properly contained, 
it will not spread into the, into the area. So let's take an example of, so, so what, what is a proper container uh, for a corpse, so to speak? So the rule is basically this. Again, I'm going to simplify it because the rules are labyrinthine, but I just want you to get a general idea. And that is, if the corpse is in a box, a coffin, let's say, a coffin, and the coffin has a tefach of space, which will always have, a tefach is just a fist, between the body and the top of the coffin, then the coffin becomes its own tent. It becomes a tent, because a tent is defined as a roof with a space of a fist. So essentially, a coffin would be considered a tent within a larger tent. And if it's a tent within a larger tent, the smaller tent blocks the dead body from being metame within the larger tent. Okay? So this would be a tent within a tent. And that would be fine. If, on the other hand, it's in a bag, so you don't have a tefach of space, then even though it's covered up, it will be metame everything in the, in the ohel. Okay? So this is a very important rule. In order to be an ohel within an ohel, it has to be what's called a halal tefach, an empty space of a tefach above the dead body. Otherwise, the tumor spreads. Now, another rule, though, which gets more complicated, is this rule that if you have a tefach of space, it becomes a container and prevents the spread of tumor into the larger ohel, only applies to a structure that itself does not become tame by contact with the dead body. Now, here you have to know, some things become tame with contact with dead bodies, other things don't. So things like wood, things like metal, they become tame if the dead body is in them. So the halacha is, anything that becomes tame can no longer be a barrier within a larger ohel. So now let's go back to the example. A wood coffin, and I'm going to change my, my, my example now. A wood coffin will not block the tumor from going into the room because the wood coffin has now become tame because there's a dead body in it. A metal coffin, which you're not allowed to have, but let's say someone has a metal coffin, is not going to block tumor. So what materials are not macabre tumor? and therefore they could serve as blockages. Plastic, paper, um, rubber. So there are materials that can block tuma, but again, it still has to be a tepach, a halal tepach. What about what? Stone. Stone, yes, yeah, stone is very good. Stone is not macabre tuma and the like. So now, let me explain the issue, just to, so now you can analyze it a little bit, when we look at an airplane, there are actually two different, right, a cohen is not allowed to become tame by a dead body. There are actually two different issues Kohanim face on airplane flights. One is, sometimes they're on a flight that has a dead body in cargo. For example, particularly uh, flights to Israel. I mean, how do dead, a lot of people want the zuchus of being buried in Eretz Israel. And you don't like to think about it, but there, there could be a lot, of, a lot of flights in which there is a dead body on board. Most infected. 
Right? There's a dead body in... But if they're underneath, then... So that's the question. So here's the question. So you have a dead body underneath. So listen to this. So uh, it's, in, it's in cargo. It's not, right? That's the bottom part of the plane. And there is at least a tefach, even putting, ignoring the coffin, there is a tefach of space, obviously, more than that, mm-hmm. between the coffin, right? So that theoretically could block it, right? Mm-hmm. Block the tumah from coming up. But here's the problem. If the materials of the air, airplane ceiling are metal, it becomes something that is susceptible to tuma, and then it doesn't block. So you have a real detailed analysis because the materials are going to be mixed. This is where it gets complicated. What are the materials in the floor of an airplane? Right? The floor is the ceiling of the cargo. Right? So there is metal, there is plastic, there is rubber. You see? Mm-hmm. Some of them are not macabre tuma, some of them are macabre tuma. And the question is, what's the majority ingredient? Meaning, uh, a posek would have to really, really get into the details of what are the floors made of. Because if they're not macabre tuma, it would become a tent that blocks the tuma from entering the higher tent. The airplane itself is a tent, but the lower story is a separate tent, so it would prevent the tumor from going up, right? So that would be that would be the, the issue. Now you have a similar issue, but it's slightly slightly different uh, when a plane flies over a cemetery. That's another issue because tumor does go up until it's blocked by a tent. So can the bottom of the airplane, which is much more, it's several miles over the uh, uh, can that block it? That also depends on the analysis of do I treat it as something that's macabre tuma or something that's not macabre tuma? That would depend on the dominant ingredients, right? So that's kind of that's kind of the big issue with airplanes, yeah. If a bag wouldn't make the corpse be considered a, its own yes. tent, yes. why would a Kohen on an airplane who puts a bag over himself be considered as if he's in another? Yeah, yeah. So the question becomes well, okay. Well, the answer, yeah, the answer basically is that uh, the Kohen did not want to rely on the uh, on the uh, floor to be the tent because the metal and the like. In other words, if you're taking that, you're right. I mean, if you follow what I said, you wouldn't have to do any of that. If you do that, it's because you consider the metal in the floor to be dominant. You know, I think her question is that if if you put a, a corpse in a bag. That's not considered a tent. If you put a coin in a bag, oh, he's in a tent. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that, that's another question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that your question? Yeah. Oh, okay, that, that actually is a very, no, that actually is a very, very good question. And that is, uh, if, as I said, a corpse in a bag is not enough because you don't have a tepach of space, then why would it help to put the coin in a bag? Yeah, that's, yeah. That, that, is, uh, that is an excellent question. Uh, it seems to be the following. It seems to be that with respect to a live person, we treat the bag, we look at the bag, since the live person can move in and out, we treat the, the space of the bag uh, being measured, even, not counting him, meaning to say, the bag is a tevach, big, just he's, he's filling it. <laughs> but if you look at the bag in terms of its dimensions, it is big enough to be a separate tent. You don't say that with a dead body because the dead body is like permanently there. So 
you can't, uh, you know, the body cannot move out of the tent, so you need a tefach while the body is in there. With respect to a person, a tahar person, um, you treat the bag as being a tefach chai, uh, even though he's there, Person's because the person could move in and out, so we don't consider that to be mama'et, the tefach. That's the difference. I don't know if this makes sense, but uh, it's really just a question of how you measure the tefach. Do you measure the tefach above the dead body, or do you measure the tefach in terms of the total capacity of the bag? So with respect to the guy in the bag, you measure the tefach in terms of the whole bag. In terms of a dead body, you have to measure it in terms of what is above the bag. Uh, te- uh, I'm sorry, what is above the, the dead body. Why aren't we just having LL flights once a month that we can't guarantee have no dead body well, no, they, 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 no, they do. As a matter of fact, Alala has a thing where um, they, they will give you an automatic, a coin. They'll, they'll give a coin an automatic rescheduling. I mean, listen, they don't know if they'll, when they'll be taking a dead body, but if they, uh, uh, they have to be given 24-hour notice, I think, by the, uh, in order to carry the body, and they will then call um, anyone that registered as a coin, who actually registered as a coin. And uh, they will give you a free, uh, free next flight. So they try, they try to accommodate you. uh, you They try to accommodate you that way. Mm -hmm. But it is a rough thing. But the cemetery thing was a big thing because that they they can't always do. Sometimes they have to fly over the cemetery. How do you even know there's so many tiny ones? Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, and you never really know. That's the other thing. I mean, you know, especially in Israel, there's all sorts of hidden. I mean, there are hidden cemeteries that that go back uh, two thousand years. We're like the yellow one right now. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What's the issue with um, dead bodies in the river? Mm. Like, in, I live in Hungary, in Budapest, and during the Holocaust, they shot Jews into the river, and we, like, we never recovered all the bodies. Yeah, so this is something that's very, very serious, theoretically, because if there's no tent, no vacant airspace above a corpse, a corpse is simply in the water, the tumor goes all the way up. So uh, if I... Well, again, if I cross the river in a boat, you'll have the same problem as an airline. Same question. Does the boat block it? If I walk through the river, if I could, if it's low, I will vade become tummy for sure if there's a dead body there. So uh, basically, uh, now there may be a point at which a body may be so decomposed. That's another halakhic shayla. Uh, this was a shayla, and I don't know if any of you have ever, ever, ever been to Poland. But, uh, you know, now they take people there, uh, seminaries there, yeshivas there. Uh, some people are against that. They say, why, why am I giving money to the Poles, whatever it would be? Uh, people visit the concentration camps. In fact, um, I will tell you an interesting story about a guy. Uh, you have to pay money to get into Auschwitz. You know, it costs money. It's a museum. So there was an older man uh, who kind of just walked through. He didn't bother uh, paying. So the German guards called him and said, hey, you know, you have to pay. I mean, it's, it's funny, but it's, it's sad. I mean, he pulled up, he showed his concentration camp number, and he said, you know, funny, I thought last time they let me in for free. I didn't know I had to pay. <laughs> it's really dark. A little, a little dark humor, yeah. Uh, he said, I didn't know I had to pay this time. I said, okay. Um, uh, but one of the things that sometimes people find, and he says, this is absolutely amazing. I mean, it's, it's horrendous. That they find things that look like pieces of bone. Amish, human, human things that are still there, they think. 
Still there, still there. So the question becomes, at some point, the decomposition may be so much that it no longer conveys tuma, and that would be relevant for the water, water too, at some point. Uh, but other than that, uh, it still conveys tuma. So and you the, can't fly and the over water, And the water is not a blockage. The water is not a blockage, because it's only air. Air and a tent. In other words, when you have uh, a dead body, you have airspace and a tent, that blocks it. But if, if it's solid, either it's dirt or it's uh, water, the tumor still goes up. Mm-hmm. See? Yeah. So, yeah. like, cremated people or don't cremate? So cremated is, 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 is an example of uh, a body that's generally been burnt usually will not convey to them anymore. That's, uh, that's the thing. But it's, it's burnt, so it's, it's no longer considered recognizable. The problem is, with cremation, you still have recognizable, this is what you have in the concentration gaps, you still have recognizable bone fragments. So then you may have a halachic problem, but if it's the things that are just ashes that don't look any different than cigarette ashes or something, they generally will not convey uh, impurity for a coag. Okay, we'll stop here. Wish you all a Yom I'm sorry, I'm ending. Okay, so let, let me just let me just say that we, we say that whenever you end with a bad thing, you're supposed to uh, end with a good thing. So let me just say something that Shabbos Cholamoed Pesach, we're going to read a Haftarah from the Navi Yecheskel, and this is a famous Haftarah, one of the most beautiful Haftarahs. Uh, this is after the Chorban Beis Hamikdash. And Yecheskel is brought to a valley, and the valley is filled with dried bones of oh. corpses. I'm sorry. Dried bones. And uh, Hashem says to Yecheskel, can these bones ever live? And Yecheskel says, doesn't look like it. And a miracle happens, and the bones get joined together, and there's flesh on the bones. And all of those corpses are revived. Now, so Machlokas, is that, did that really happen, or is that a mara, is that a vision Yechezkel had? Some say these were the Jews of Bnei Ephraim, who 30 years before Yitzhiyaz Mitzrayim left, and they all died in the desert. But they're going to come back too. And Hashem says, this is Bnei Yisrael. They feel like they're dried bones, they feel like corpses, they feel there's no hope but they too will live and flourish and come back to Eretz Yisrael and be Zohar to Mashiach and Beis HaMikdash. So the Atzomais Hayaveshais, the dried bones, which we were just talking about, quite literally, is actually the simon of Geula and hope and Yeshua in Shabbos Cholomoed uh, Pesach, so look for it, uh, the famous Nebuah of, of Yechensky. So be Yeshua Hashem, so,